The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. As Climate Week and the United Nations Climate Action Summit kick off in New York, I'm joined by Lord John Brown. In 1997, early into his 12 years running British Petroleum, he became one of the first executives of a major fossil fuel company to warn of the dangers of global warming. Since leaving BP in 2007, he has championed both renewable energy and natural gas, as well as becoming an author. His latest book, entitled Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization, has just been published. We sit down to discuss the thinking behind the book before delving into his current opinions on the climate crisis. Lord Brown, thanks for coming on The Exchange this morning. Great to have you on the show. A pleasure to be here. So obviously we're here today because you've got a new book out, your fifth, I believe, Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. Before we get onto that, though, let me just dive into what you're doing now. So I think most people know you as the uh, chief executive of BP, British Petroleum. Uh, you left there about 12 years ago, but you're still in the oil business, correct? I'm still in the energy business. Right. Uh, I left uh, uh, BP uh, and then became the co-head of uh, a very large renewable energy fund, right. the, wor- the largest in the world, which worked out very well. Uh, and after that, I've been in the oil and gas business, uh, investing money for a set of highly wealthy people uh, to create a company. And we've created uh, a new company uh, with appropriate scale. You need to be big in the oil and gas business to survive right. nowadays, uh, called Vintage Aldea. It's a, it's a private company. Uh, we're the, the largest private oil and gas company and arguably one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, independent oil and gas company in the world. When you say live, so how do you quantify that? Well, it's, produ- it's going to produce around about 800,000 barrels a day, which right. I think for the people in this industry would say that's not bad. Right. Uh, and we are, uh, it, we're, we're diversified around the world, so we don't uh, rely on one uh, jurisdiction only uh, for our revenue. Uh, and there's a, a decent amount of growth and plans for the future, all of which will be exposed as we come to market. We do expect to uh, take this uh, company public if the markets are there, of course, yep. uh, in the second half of next year. Right. OK, well, maybe we'll get back to that a bit later. On. I know we're going to talk about one of the big issues in the book, which is, is climate change. But let's start off you know, when thinking about this book. Uh, having read it, you've got a lot of examples in there of a lot of different technology from the past now and possibly going into the future. So if I look at you know, some of them, um, you start off with you know, um, some, some well-crafted watches, uh, AI, nanotechnology, spider silk was one of my favorite things early in the book. Um, and obviously, you go into new manufacturing techniques a fair bit, as well as what's happening with, with um, your industry, oil and gas. Um, what made you want to write this book, though? I know you're an engineer uh, by training, and the whole point of this is to say, okay, what can engineering do for the world? But, but what was the ultimate aim of wanting to do this book? So I just make two points. The first, uh, it's to make the point uh, that civilization is founded on engineering. Uh, I say that as someone who's deeply involved in the arts and culture, where right. most people in that milieu will say that's about civilization. Right. A- and I thought about that and said, no, that's not the case. Actually, it's all founded on engineering, and we need a much deeper debate about what that's actually doing for us. Point one. Point two was that uh, engineering, engineered products produce uh, intended consequences, uh, what they're designed for, and unintended consequences. And we need to separate the two and decide what to do with the unintended consequences. Usually, we engineer the unintended consequences out, but we regulate them out, and we change behaviors to get them out, 
and we changed the law to get them out. Right. That can, of course, take a, a fair amount of time. I think, as you, as you mentioned in the book, there are times when we've seen a lot of um, products you go into being used for, I suppose, let's, let's say generally nefarious purposes, whether it be warfare, terrorism, whatever. Absolutely. I, I think in warfare, uh, it's usually on purpose. Very often there yeah. are dual uses for things, and they occasionally start as uh, weapons of destruction. Uh, and that's, uh, that has antecedents in history uh, from, indeed, one of my yeah. favorite places, Venice, Italy, where you can go around the shipyard, where really, I suppose, mass production started. Right. Uh, and uh, ships were made for both trade and war. Right. And they did both. Uh, and uh, that was uh, the beginning, I think, of real dual use. Right. OK, so, so you say the point is to try and say, look, engineering is at the core of, of um, civilization, of the way we have grown as a civilization. Um, when you've, uh, having written the book, I'm sure some of the, your friends in the arts and culture world have, have read it. What, what's the response you've got from them? Are, are they seeing the point you want to make, do you think? Yes, they are. Uh, some somewhat reluctantly. <laughs> uh, but they are saying that. They, they say, yes, we understand so this, in your terms, they say, is a platform, and we sit on this platform, right. and we can use it to our advantage. And th they're right, actually. Right. Uh, that's what it is. It's the fundamental platform. That fundamental platform of engineering is comprised of different things. Uh, they are mostly to do with making humanity, uh, the lot of humanity better, right. giving them energy, giving them longer lives, uh, less disease, uh, a, a less violent uh, world, which actually engineering has produced for us, mm. uh, better educated, better connected. Yeah. I suppose if I, if I look back over history, I mean, you can pick out many, many people who, who are involved in both. But if you're thinking about the, your arts and cultural friends, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, um, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, I mean, both of those were renowned engineers and scientists, as well as well-renowned painters and, and, and writers. Absolutely. And I think uh, it's interesting in this year of Leonardo, uh, the contentious discussion about him yep. is he probably was a great draftsman, wasn't too good an engineer. <laughs> he actually uh, promoted himself as an engineer because that was the way he could get a job. Right. I have to say the analogy with me, I'm not Leonardo, but that's exactly what my father told me. He said, go get a real job. And so as a result, I had to convert from being a physicist to be an engineer. Of course, he was, he was in one of the, the, the BP predecessor companies, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. He was. And so yeah, then you, you joined, basically. And, yes. And were there for, what, 40-odd years? 40 years. Yeah. Uh, it's not unusual in those days. No. Uh, extremely unusual mm. today. Yes. So um, when you think about all of the uh, products you talk about in the book and all of the, the various people behind them, I think you interviewed more than 100 people for this book, and you, mm. you list them at the end. Mm. What are the ones that stand out for you the most? If you're going to say, I, I, this, maybe this is a difficult one to do. I'm sure you chose the, all of them you chose because you thought these are in, important to cover. But what are the ones that stand out for you most? So uh, it's always difficult because these are very distinguished people. So I say that yeah. by prelude. But uh, there are some people who really did stand out. So uh, Robert Langer at MIT uh, is an engineer who... Uh, tried about 40 different ways to get into a hospital when he graduated. Right. Uh, and they all said, no, you're an engineer, not a medic. And he's become uh, the Edison of medicine, as he's called. <laughs> uh, but his, his idea is to use the blood as a river and to float things along the river right. to get them to where they need to go rather than pollute the river with all the chemicals that you need. So right. the obvious thing is uh, hitting a tumor uh, with almost a gun, right. a chemical gun. And he's very successful in this area. Uh, I admire him enormously because as I was leaving, 
uh, he told me, I asked him, you know, well, what's this all for? He said, well, I'd just like to reduce suffering. Right. And I thought to myself, that actually is a very noble purpose, yes. which he is actually discharging. Yeah. So I give him high marks just simply for the purpose that he is mm. discharging in a way which is extraordinary. Yeah. What what's, what's, do you think drives a lot of the other engineers you spoke to, I mean, in, including yourself? We can put you in this as well. So, um, OK, so his, his goal was I want to reduce suffering. Often, I, I assume, and maybe this is me from my arts and cultural background, thinking, well, engineers just like to build things and see what happens to them, which is pretty obnoxious of me, I'm sure. But uh, what is the rationale behind a lot of the other engineers you spoke to? So I think most people fall into a broad group which says there are problems, there are challenges, we want to solve them. They're very right. exciting to solve because they're good for humanity uh, and they actually improve a lot of humanity. And, so, uh, and they recognise that some of the solutions that used in the past aren't the right solutions and they've yeah. got to be remade. Yeah. So you look at the way a city's put together. If we started from here, we probably wouldn't get to where we are. Uh, we'd go somewhere different. Uh, and I think most of the people I spoke to in the in that area, you know, how do you build something, yeah. uh, would admit that. But they say there's plenty of different ways of doing it. Mm. So uh, I think everyone is really focused on that. Very few people, I would say, have said to me, oh, well, the only reason I'm doing this is to float a company. Yeah. Uh, I, I really think that that's, uh, and actually as an investor, I would say if someone comes to me and says that, I'm yeah. not sure I'm very excited about them. Yeah. But if they tell me I'm going to build a great company, then I'm very yeah. excited about that. Was there? A, did that make then a degree of self-selection in, in the people you wanted to interview? So did you exclude certain, did you did you go after the, the weapons industry, for example, and say, okay, what's driving you to well, this, that and the other? Well, we, uh, we actually did uh, cover the weapons industry. We had some very interesting discussions about you know, uh, you know, machines to kill people, yeah. uh, you know, autonomous killing machines, and, and what, why aren't there more of them? Uh, and uh, we understood the concept of not mutually assured destruction, we know about right. that, but mutually assured disturbance, Right. Where, where at a lower level, you know, if I can build an autonomous, autonomous killing machine, so can you. Uh, and if I can control mine, I can probably control yours as well. Right. Uh, and so who gets hurt? Is, uh, is unclear. Right. So there, there are a lot of interesting things here. But, you know, drones, for example, have been the, the real example. Uh, there's a, a wonderful, uh, scary uh, clip on YouTube called Slaughterbots, which is uh, a, a movie made by an extraordinary professor we, we spoke to, uh, who, uh, uh, which, which shows, uh, uh, it's a, a fake corporate movie, right. which uh, says there's a, a, a drone that can have your face in it, and it will go and seek you out and kill you and then blow up. <laughs> uh, and uh, so yeah. uh, I asked him at the end of my interview, we talked about autonomous vehicles, autonomous control. Yeah. I said, well, could you make one of these? And he said, well, you know, I probably, you know, get my uh, graduate students to knock it up in a couple of years. So I said, well, wh why don't, wh why isn't this happening? What we said again, it's about, uh, two things. It's about mutually assured uh, disturbance. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen to them. And secondly, there remains ethical principles in vast quantities of the world, probably not everywhere. No. But uh, there are rules and there are behaviors which are embedded in the people who do this work. Right. What about, um, were there people you wanted to interview uh, who didn't want to or who you couldn't get hold of? Who are still alive? Let's put it that way. Yeah, so <laughs> I would that. love to have interviewed some people who <laughs> yes. are no longer with us. But uh, 
so not really. I t- I'll tell you why. And, and it, uh, being the author, I get to select what I write. Yeah. Uh, and so I only wrote in areas that I've been involved in, right. in one way or another. So there are notable exceptions in the book. For example, I don't cover the Green Revolution, mm. agricultural science, agricultural engineering. I, I've had no involvement whatsoever. So all the things I talk about, basically I've been involved with one way or another. And as a result, I've got to know over you know, the 50 years I've been in business, uh, various people. And most people uh, said, yes, we'll talk to you. Right. Uh, and uh, they were very open indeed. And they were... We naturally, this is not journalism, so we had to go back and say, are you prepared to stand by your quote? I think we got only out of all the quotes we used, probably two uh, suggested amendments. Right. So people were true to form and they wanted to say something and they wanted to have an opinion and, and they did have an opinion. Yeah. Yeah, it's a somewhat better ratio than we journalists tend to get when we have to check quotes. Well, well, <laughs> so some, well done. I mean, some interviews didn't work out very well. Right. There was nothing which we could really use there, or they duplicated other people, so mm. so we didn't use them. Yeah. Um, one one of the technologies you mentioned is a very simple one, um, and it, I don't think it takes up a great deal of time in the book, but it does link into other parts of the book, and that's that's the Bic crystal pen, yes. uh, which you describe quite nicely. Um and you chose that, I think, in part because linking it to other parts of the book, you are also trying to say, look, without engineering, democracy would not have taken hold, which is a pretty bold claim. I can see where it's coming from, I think. But can you just go into that and explain why you, how you're linking and why you're linking engineering and democracy? Well, it's, it's about the widespread and access. Uh, and I think I thought that the big pen was not only a very beautiful object, mm. it was a very simple object. Yeah. And it still can be used to communicate and connect. We've got plenty of other ways of doing that uh, with the internet, with type, with which can speak to computers. Yep. We can do all sorts of things, uh, and there are plenty of very sophisticated ways. But actually, if you don't have any of that, uh, and you have a big pen and you have a piece of paper, uh, you can communicate, uh, and and maybe you can communicate in a very accurate way because writing is uh, a, a quite a labor-intensive activity. Mm. And if you use too many words, your hand gets tired and you don't yeah. finish. So you have to think about what it is you're going to do. It, it forces you not to be prolix. Right. You've got to be accurate. Uh, and so I thought it was the right way to finish uh, a chapter about communication, about connection. Yeah. And also you, you do mention, uh, I think a bit earlier in the book, that you know, the ability to communicate means that we can foster democracy. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, there's obviously unintended consequences mm. there, you know, so people tamper with uh, the news. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and, and also, you know, connectivity is really it has democratized so many things, uh, but it's also balkanized some things. So, you know, people with uh, one particular excitement and I don't mean stamp collecting, I mean, terrorism yeah. or particularly unpleasant uh, ro- extreme right wing views, they all get together and they plot the downfall of people who are not like them. And that is bad, and that was something that, I must say, when all this started, I never thought would really happen. Uh, But it did, uh, and it was predicted by, uh, when I went to a conference with a very great, now um, no longer with us, uh, Nobel laureate called Arno Penzias, who was very clear from the very beginning. He said, this will balkanize the world this yeah. will but rather than connect the world it's of course done both yes yeah um i think it's a good t- opportunity to jump into 
the idea of, of responsibility and social responsibility. And, and there's a couple of ways into this, but I'm just going to quote one piece that you, you have near the beginning. You say that um, you write that engineers and biologists and the like, quote, will need to work hard to show that they can maintain control over their creations. Safeguards will be needed to prevent the creation of dangerous new life forms, diseases, and so on. Um, how do you do that? How, how do engineers, scientists, and others show that that's not going to happen? I think you do go into a bit of it, but um, there is a real fear here that, you know, I think Elon Musk, for example, talks about um, AI taking over humans, for example. Whether he's right or not, it's another matter, but the fear is there. So how, I mean, you mentioned that at the beginning, but how, how do you do that? So I, I'm trying in the book, the, uh, in a very small contribution to this, to uh, demystify and de-hype some of the activity that's going on, in particular AI, where I think uh, artificial general intelligence is uh, a bridge which we probably will never cross. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, how do you define general intelligence, first yes. of all, uh, and how do you get something to work like the brain, So, uh, which we don't actually understand how it works. But I think there are, in the book, coming through again and again, there are different layers of protection and feedback. Mm -hmm. First is uh, a soft way, which is, I think, really important. It is culture, behavior, and education. Mm. Like you mentioned about the drones earlier on. Exactly. So it's, and it is the fact that we have to continuously uh, educate an engineer that while you can do something, you need to step back and right. ask, should you do it? Right. So I think that's the lowest level of control, but a very important one. The next is supervisory activity. So this is, uh, are there groups of people who represent stakeholders who can control what's going on because they have a wider view? Mm. Uh, and I think that's if most effective uh, in the corporate sector, usually, usually, not always, but right. boards of directors and, and who deeply understand stakeholders. Right. I mean, it's not just a financial uh, activity. The third level is, of course, regulation, but regulation very often lags uh, yeah. what's needed, uh, and it's responsive to uh, errors, or, uh, and so we should, we will get one or two errors. And then finally, there's the law, which is what's the punishment yeah. for contravening all this. So you build up these layers, I think, and uh, sometimes they they take longer, and we should recognize that. Mm. But we shouldn't throw everything out just because right. there's one problem. Some things have a, a deep-seated uh, ethical uh, 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 basis. So, for example, uh, altering the human germline is something that post the Nazi experimentation on the human right. being, the world said, we're not going to do this. We really aren't going to yeah. alter a living mechanism and create some monster. So, you know, up appears a, uh, an irresponsible Chinese physician who, uh, who may, or may, may or may not have done this. Right. It's interesting to see the reaction. Everybody, including the Chinese government, have said, this is outrageous. Right. You have to stop. I think that's we should be comforted by that. Right. Uh, in that, you know, it's a long time since we've had this uh, eugenics uh, experiments, and we still remember we don't want to do it. Right. Now, it doesn't mean to say we're going to have some crazy person somewhere do something, uh, and we'll have to think how to handle that. Uh, but uh, you know, you cannot make a perfect control. There is no such thing as perfect control. Right. But on balance. You have to say the, the risks are probably low as long as we take, we use all the tools and techniques that we have 
uh, to do the right thing and to be as transparent as possible about what we're doing. Mm. Uh, I know everyone's been watching box sets Chernobyl uh, and you yes. can see exactly there the behavior. No transparency yep. increased the impact of this disaster. Right. That, I think, is something that we have learned about. And in most places, most places, transparency eventually uh, it comes about. Everybody can find out. Everyone's connected. Right. Find out what's going on. One of the other things, of course, people talk about with the advance of technology, and this, this is an age-old discussion, and you bring up the, 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 the example that we always bring up, I think, which is the Luddites, mm. um, is that people will lose their jobs and that the technology will take over uh, everything from us and we'll be left jobless, penniless, homeless. Um, now, I don't quite believe that. Um, I think there are issues we can go into on that, um, uh, uh, sort of subsets of that. But in general, your, your line in this is that's actually not the case. Correct. I, I think we have a, a fact base uh, from the Luddites onwards, which demonstrates that uh, the contention made by them and probably the future prognosis made by people today is wrong. Right. Uh, so the work week certainly has come down. Uh, over 120 years, it's come down from roughly 70 hours a week uh, to 35 hours a week. So who are we to determine that 35 hours a week is the perfect optimum yes. and it should never go down again? Of course it will go down. Yes, I like uh, the idea that you, you seem to be arguing yeah. for a 15-hour week in the book, which I think a lot of people will applaud you for. Well, let's see. But we need – so this opens up an entirely different question, which is not about engineering, but it's about the counterpart of it, which is public policy. So what do we do with 15 yeah. hours? Do we pay people $10 an hour? Yeah. I don't think so. We have to think about a different way of paying them and then ask ourselves what is the unique skill yeah. uh, of the human uh, to use some of this time. And it will be, of course, empathy. Right. Uh, and uh, caring and, and things like that, where we are actually in terribly short supply of people who do that. Yes. Uh, and we'll need more for the future. Yes, but aging populations. Exactly. Inability, the inability of the current system to cope yeah. with that. And, and, cetera, and there will be new activities and new ways of spending time. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, this, uh, this, this topic correctly comes up m many times because people are what muddle up first the eventual change with the transition. Right. The transition can be rough. can be rough because you've got to reskill, you have to re-educate. Um, but we've done it many times before, yeah. many, many times. I remember as a student in Cambridge going to uh, a meeting because I was intrigued with computers then. They were right. little, very different from the way they are today, uh, about the age of automation and what we were going to do with all the leisure time yeah. that we had created. And that was in 1967, mm. I think. Uh, the topic and discussion is not unsimilar. It's not to say, it's un it's, it, of course it's important. It, I'm not diminishing it. Mm. But uh, we've, you know, we should use the learning rather than think that this is a brand new experience. Yeah. So of course, some of the, uh, you, you often give examples in the book of how new technology creates new types of jobs. So, yes. you know, um, the mobile phone has now created, and has, since it's morphed into a smartphone, has created, I think, as you said, lots of jobs in, in app development and everything else, which you never would have expected, I think you said, 20 years ago. So there's that, at least. The issue, I think, is, is the transition, and, and, you, and you did bring that up. But if I think back to, say, when I was a teenager in the, in the 80s in Britain, um, when there was a huge change in, in industrial output of the country, and large swathes of the industrial north were left 
uh, without many jobs. And you can do this. You can look at the same issues here in America, um, where you know you go to Detroit, you go to Pittsburgh, and many other cities where the dominant industry died out or or shrank considerably. And I think you know if I think about how policymakers have responded to this and companies as well, it's pretty poor. In fact, we had an example. Uh, a senator told one of our, our colleagues um, that back in the 80s in America somewhere, I think it was, I think it was actually down in, in Pittsburgh, a lot of people there, a lot of the women who were being kicked out of steel industry were retrained as hairdressers, like a huge line of hairdressers and makeup artists, utterly useless, no good thought to, think to put into how to make the transition better for them. How, how, do, we, how do we do that, a better job of that, do you think? So uh, I think many people have done this, and I don't have uh, the magic bullet which says this is the obvious solution. But I go back to this. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the exceptional nature of humans is twofold. One is they actually are very flexible. Their machines generally are not. They're not. They're yeah. very inflexible. Uh, and secondly, they're very imaginative. So it seems to me those things need to be borne in mind. And from the very beginning of employing someone or teaching them, you need to build in this point that there will always be change. Creative destruction's always right. on the cards, and uh, it's up to employers as well as governments to keep doing that and to create uh, labor flexibility and mobility yeah. uh, because this will continue to happen. It will continue to happen, and, and we can't uh, support legacy with government intervention because in the end it cracks. Yeah. If you don't need something, I don't care what you do, if you, no one needs it, it will not sell. Yeah. You know. So I, I think it comes back to this uh, uh, thinking through what will happen when a change takes place, educating and training from the very beginning, ready for change. Right. Seems to me those are really important things because every time a steel mill closes, uh, it comes as a surprise. Mm. Actually, it's not a surprise. Yeah. It isn't a surprise. So that, that gets back to the, the inflexibility of policy in some respects and to regulation you mentioned earlier. So how do you build an education system that, that can be prepared for those kinds of changes? Well, uh, again, I think, you know, it's part of what you might all think of as the, the pension you pay people. Uh, you pay people money when they, they leave, yep. uh, but you should also pay them with skills. Right. And I think that has to be part of... Uh, this newly revived stakeholder management. Yeah. I mean, employees are stakeholders. Yeah. Uh, they should be given the flexibility and training uh, to survive beyond mm. today and to prosper beyond yeah. today. In fact, now, that of came course, up the high end yeah. uh, of employment does that. You yeah. know, the, the best of the college graduates, of course. of course they do it. But I'm talking about doing it for everybody. Yeah. Now, th this idea, this, uh, this ability to manage or inability to manage the transition um, came up in the recent town hall climate change debates for the 10 um, Democratic presidential candidates for next year. Um, and they talked about it a bit. And obviously, climate change is one of the biggest issues we face. You, in your book, remind people that you stood up and said that the oil and gas industry needs to change back in 1997. Um, not a great deal has changed. Yes, I can see, you know, we can look at, say, the, the take, taking on more natural gas is a good, I think as you put it, a bridge fuel, because the carbon emissions are, what, half as much as oil, I think. Um, but not much has been done in the 20 years, or even more if you look at other scientists who have been talking about it for a long time. Um, how, 
how do you see engineering playing a role in this? And, and why is it that it's taking so long for people to change? I mean, if, if the CEO of a major oil and gas company says this is an issue in 1997, and only 22 years later do we get the same oil company saying, okay, we'll think about how to limit our emissions somewhat. And I say somewhat because it's a bit fluffy. We're in trouble, aren't we? Uh, we probably are. Uh, so we've lost a quarter century, at yeah. least, I would say, uh, with not too much happening on the, uh, in, 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 in implementation. There is, however, something happening underneath it all. And when, we look, when I look at all the technologies we need, the engineered processes and products, to uh, reduce the carbon emissions in the world, in one way or another, they're all ready to go. They're actually ready to go. We don't right. need to discover something. What we need to do is to make it better, these processes, by implementing them at scale. Right. Because unless you get the scale, you don't get the cost down, the price down. Right. So I, I think I start on the basis that it would be terrific if we could get rid of hydrocarbons, but we can't. Uh, they represent 85% of the world's energy system. And the world's energy system is the largest system there is. Mm. Uh, it's huge. So, and renewables, after a lot of activity, which I've been highly support of, supportive of, is 4%. Yeah. The rest is made of a mix of nuclear and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, the transition uh, or the change will be slow. So, I conclude, therefore, we have to do something to capture, store, or use the carbon dioxide that we're mm. going to produce through burning fossil fuels. And those techniques we have. Uh, I don't think it's an engineering problem, but I think, again, it's a public policy problem. Right. We need to make it sufficiently unattractive for people to put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere so that they actually decide to do something with it. So this becomes what this is? This becomes incentives for carbon sequestration for capturing so it's either and a tax, it into the or It's either a tax or a price, probably a tax. Uh, and I, this is not going to happen uh, until I think the general population, all of us, look around us and say something's happening to the climate uh, and we want people to do something about it. Then I think we'll spring into action. Then it, uh, that, that, uh, and that implies cost, though, doesn't it, to, to, to us, does. the users? It does. It implies cost. It will, I think, change efficiency significantly. Uh, but it will imply cost to an extent. Let's assume it's a carbon tax. Uh, so Mr. Macron in um, France has tried this, and it, it backfired somewhat. Mm. Uh, the reason is that it looked like a regressive tax. Yeah. So Hank Paulson, on the other hand, with some colleagues, I think had almost persuaded Congress here that uh, if you made it a progressive tax, in other words, you redistributed the yeah. bulk of the taxation to the population in the right sensible way, then it might make sense. So right. the costs will be rebalanced. They won't necessarily go up to the consumer, yeah. but they will rebalance. Right. So th this, and this helps manage the transition for the, the, the less affluent members of Correct. society especially. Which is the you know, I mean, it's 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 this it's it's the below median mm. is a large number of people. It is the important bit to think about. Yeah. So I think that, uh, uh, and this this is a way of 
transitioning over quite a long time scale. Mm. Having said that, there will be some things that in any event are going to happen, but they're long and slow. Mm. Coal, I think, simply because of its low-level pollution and particulate matter, uh, people don't like it, and wherever they can, they'll eventually get rid right. of it. Although it's growing in India, you know, and they're developing I'm surprised, new mines. actually, Coal India is, is, has some of the best margins of any company I've ever seen. It's very so at the moment, it's, correct. it's great for it's, them. It's a great, great um, activity for them. But I'm, I think globally, you can see <coughs> yeah. eventually, I think. Uh, oil, I think, will uh, probably plateau and, and uh, uh, sort of maybe decline from there, partly because uh, the uh, advance of engineering since the mid-'80s, it's very clear that the number of barrels of oil you need to produce a unit of GDP yeah. is going down in a, in a very linear, straightforward way. Right. And so if you look at that and look at the growth of the world, you clearly see that there will be finite limits to the mm. amount of oil that will be consumed. So there yeah. are some things happening. Gas is more ubiquitous, getting cheaper. Renewables will get better, but uh, they need to get uh, they need to get really much better. Mm. Uh, use less space, for example, uh, to really grow faster. And, and engineering I think can help that, though. Can't you? you mentioned oh, that in absolutely. the book. Absolutely. You mentioned that the whole sort of nanotechnology can can make absolutely. lithium-ion batteries far more uh, capable of holding power for longer. Correct. Eventually. So, uh, uh, and I think that's where we need some, probably, uh, uh, we could use present lithium-ion batteries. This is very expensive, and there are lots of them that don't last long. But more and more work is being mm. done. This is an obvious thing uh, to invest in engineering advance, much as it is to invest in solar panels to make them much more efficient right. per square foot. So you don't need so many square feet of them, which means if you put them on top of a house or a building, uh, you can generate much more electricity. Of course, there is also a trade-off there in that a lot of the, the processes for mining these, um, whether, whether it's rare earths or, or other um, uh, needed uh, metals, are uh, can, or can be very um, carbon-intensive themselves. Well, they're both carbon-intensive and destructive for the yes. natural environment, yeah. so they need to be controlled very, very carefully and made highly mm. efficient. Actually, then that's where you know a lot of these processes get more efficient with energy uh, as a result of learning, so AI, you know, trying to work out how to optimize uh, the processes and learn from that. Yeah. And that's what uh, DeepMind has done very well to uh, reduce the power consumption of the gigantic number of um, data centers that yeah. uh, Google has. Yeah. And you mentioned a point about um, adoption of uh, of new technology and the speed it takes. That comes up in the book. You've alluded to it a, a bit earlier on. And actually, just recently, the chief executive of Exxon, Darren Woods, made a similar point uh, at an investor conference and put up a, screen, a chart saying, look, here's how uh, long, it take, how long it has taken certain technologies to take off. Um, a lot of the time, though, when I look, I look at those, I think, yes, that's true. Uh, but also, a lot of the time, there is no big external force apart from, say, this would be good to use, wouldn't it? But let's get it to scale. Just uh, to, to, to jivvy it along. But it, You've got two examples where you do have um, the ability to move processes faster. We mentioned one, war, obviously. Uh, and the Great War and the, and the Second World War were two great examples, if we can put it that way, of where, where technology advances were very yeah, and, and the Cold War yes, as well. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Um, but te technology can also be advanced, and you, you've alluded to this as well in the interview, uh, through public policy. Would that, if you had a carbon tax... Uh, enough of a carbon tax. If you had other incentives for renewable energy, um, 
and the creation and, and, and innovation needed to say get um, you know the, the, the spider silk you mentioned to the kind of strength to work for lithium ion. Um, wouldn't that speed up the process? There is no doubt yeah. uh, that it will do that. Uh, it has to be applied to sectors, not corporations, not individuals. Yep. Uh, there has to be enough competition uh, to really make it work. And any um, help by governments needs to be dynamic. In other words, uh, as the margin expands because people can do it better, yeah. so the subvention, the intervention by the government, needs to be reduced. Right. Uh, otherwise, we have this problem that uh, we had with uh, renewables where people were making far too high a return on the simple basis that they could make the process better, yeah. engineer the process better, but the incentives were constant. Yes, yeah. Well, some of those are beginning to slow off. Although we're seeing with Tesla, it's also impacting some of their sales. So we'll see where that goes. Um, so final question. Um, given all we talked about, the, the, the role of, of engineering in making society better, your views on climate change, why is it that you're still in the energy business? Well, I, I suppose because I've always been in the energy yeah. business. I'd like to make it uh, better. So I spent uh, you know, eight, nine years purely in the renewable energy business. Right. And I think that was interesting to see it develop from simply a state-supported activity to a real commercial activity. Yeah. And I'm very pleased I've been involved in that. And I can see new horizons opening up. Uh, with oil and gas, uh, I've been very careful to be in mostly the gas business, mostly the gas business, yeah. and not in the coal business, uh, and some oil business. So I think that's the transition, right. uh, and I'd like uh, the company that I'm presently involved in, uh, which I, I chair the uh, shareholder committee uh, of this uh, independent, uh, to, insofar as it can, because it's not a major, uh, be active in at least attempting to get carbon policy changed. It's always better to do this with a corporation than to do it with uh, a piece of paper. Right. So I, I think those are important things. And, and I want to, I think it's worth reminding uh, people again and again that energy is the foundation of everything we do. It's everything we do. Yeah. It powers everything. It powers the hardware that we forget that exists. I'm struck again and again when people talk about the cloud, they look at what their wonderful iPhone does. Yeah. They forget that behind all this, there's gigantic amount of hardware, which has taken 60 years to develop and can only be powered by enormous amounts of energy. And that is what keeps life going. Yeah. John Brown, thanks so much for coming on The Exchange. It's been a pleasure to have you. A pleasure. Thank you. Okay, that's almost it for this week. Just one more thing. On the way to the lift, Lord Brown and I talked a bit more about climate change, how it's threatening the wine industry for one, but he also confessed that he's worried the world's temperature will increase by a fair bit more than the two degrees targeted by the 2015 Paris Accord. That, though, might not affect many of us if one of the scientists he interviewed for his book is right. She told him that the immunity to antibiotics and other medicines that diseases are building up could lead to mass pandemics that could then wipe out large swathes of the global population. Those are depressingly sobering thoughts, or perhaps a necessary call to action. I'll leave that up to you. So that is it for this week. Thanks as ever to our awesome producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Pretty Joiner. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister show, The Views Room, on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcast kicks. Join us again next week for another edition.